Well, uh, welcome to episode 151 of the Luke Messias Show. Uh, we have a great conversation with John Davidson, a respected conservative voice here in the Lone Star State who actually has a platform that he gets to talk about across the nation. So I always like bringing y'all people who um, are in the national conversation, but actually based here in Texas. So we're going to get a chance to kind of talk through several things on that today. Um, also, we want to give you a quick update on the Supreme Court's actions, because last week we discussed the fact that vaccine mandates were still in Texas. The Supreme Court had not decided. But one of the things we talked to you about was the fact that vaccine mandates were going to be in Texas, regardless of what the Supreme Court did ultimately decide. So I want to give you a very quick update before we get to our conversation with John. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court came down against the OSHA mandate, the Biden OSHA mandate, but it upheld the healthcare mandate for healthcare workers, which means that every single healthcare worker in Texas, nurses, doctors, physicians, assistants, all sorts of these people that work for hospitals can have a federal government mandated vaccine or be fired. Now, here's the reality. A lot of our courageous medical professionals that are not vaccinated have already been fired. Because for the last year in Texas, we have allowed vaccine mandates to stay in place, and they haven't been the federal government making these corporations and hospitals fire their employees. They've just been getting fired, plain and simple. And that's one of the things we talked about. You need to understand that we have two now vaccine mandates in place in Texas. We have massive corporate vaccine mandates happening all over the state. I talked to uh, vaccine activists, people who are advocating for vaccine choice. You talk to conservative leaders across the nation, even here at Texas Scorecard. We get communication on the regular from individual citizens saying, I have been told that I need to get vaccinated or I will be fired. These are single mothers. These are people who had just one income. My husband has been informed. I stay at home. I homeschool our two or three kids. This is the life that so many Texans are living. And it's something that Texas could stop if it would just step up and actually ensure that vaccine mandates are not legal. We have almost a dozen states across the nation that have made the decision that their citizens' right to their own medical decisions should be protected. That has not happened in Texas. We have not had a special session. The Texas Republican Party has called for a special session on this issue. Oh, several dozen lawmakers have asked the governor to call a special session so that they can pass a law that simply says that citizens have the right to make their own medical decisions and they can't be fired for not getting the COVID-19 vaccine. So that is where we're at in Texas. The good news is that the OSHA mandate that the Biden administration tried to force on the state was actually ruled unconstitutional. The bad news is that healthcare professionals are still all going to be fired if they're not vaccinated, if they haven't already been. And so many Texans are still getting fired. So that is what you need to know about how to stay in the fight and the fact that if you haven't talked to your legislator about these issues, you should consider it. If this is something you care about, you should reach out to your local legislators and ask them, what are you doing to make sure that we can address this issue now? We can't wait till next legislative session. That's not until 2023. With that being said, let's bring in John Davidson. John, you have been uh, writing and talking about issues for a long time. I'd love for you to give our listeners and our viewers just a little bit of your background to kind of kick us off. But uh, I want to specifically bring you on to talk about uh, the state of our southern border, because this is something that you actually know quite a bit of. And then we're also going to end by talking about just where we are with journalism today. Journalism has been reshaped in so many ways. And so you have been someone who's been involved in journalism for such a long period of time that you've seen a lot of these changes and moves and even your work at The Federalist. How does that kind of play into the broader conversation of where we're at as journalists in general? So please start us off by just giving us a little bit of your background on where you came from, what you're doing today, and 
then we'll get to the border. Sure. Thanks, Luke. And let me just say, I, I got to endorse everything you just said about what Texas needs to do with these vaccine mandates. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was great to have that ruling from the Supreme Court, but I don't understand why Texas is so far behind other states mm-hmm. when it comes to this classic kind of like, you know, Texas liberty kind of an issue mm-hmm. where we should be leading the way. And I think it's another instance, we can talk about this later if you want, where you know, Texas's reputation for being a, a liberty loving state and a state of limited government uh, really exceeds the reality by, mm. by a long shot. So uh, th- thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a senior editor at The Federalist. Uh, I joined the staff of The Federalist uh, in the spring of 2016. At the time, I came on as a, a sort of politician. Um, and I've, I've been with them ever since. And it's been, you know, we're still a relatively small organization, but we have grown and matured uh, quite a bit over the past, um, I guess, nine years. The Federalist was launched in 2013. And so I, I contributed, you know, shortly after it launched, just on a freelance basis, came on staff in 2016. Um, and we're scattered all over the country, although. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we had a lot of people in DC. Now, uh, since COVID, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of those people moved. We had we had a guy move out to Denver, uh, uh, a girl move out to back to Wisconsin. Here mm-hmm. in Texas, we actually have. I'm in, based in Austin. Our managing editor is in Fort Worth, mm-hmm. and uh, a, one of our staff writers is in Midland. So mm-hmm. we have uh, quite a quite a strong Texas presence here. And uh, and that's good, uh, partly because we're able to pay more attention to uh, the border mm. and uh, and having the staff kind of diffused out through Texas and even into the Western states and up in the Midwest. It helps us to, to sort of not have such a D.C., New York centric mm-hmm. uh, view of the country when it comes to coverage, mm. which, you know, as you know, most corporate media, uh, that it, it's really um they have almost a provincial view because everything is sort of seen from Washington or New York. Mm. And, and that's that that really distorts, uh, I think, a person's perspective. So uh, being at the Federalist through its kind of growth phase, like you said, from kind of early on to where it is today, what do you think has led? And we'll get into some of this discussion a bit later. But since, you know, you have been a journalist that's done a lot of writing in a lot of different ways, what what's kind of unique about the Federalist and the information you all put out? Uh, well, we, we joke around that the Federalist wouldn't exist uh, if National Review you know, did its job and was was the magazine it was, it was meant to be. But um, yeah. uh, it, it was clear after the 2012 election, I think, that there was something really wrong in the media landscape for like the right of center. And, hmm. uh, you know, the sort of old boys, D.C. based uh, network of Mitt Romney loving Republicans uh, you know, and then with the autopsy after the 2012 presidential election, thinking, oh, what we really need is like to get soft on immigration and mm. you know, reach out, really moderate, you know, on all these social issues. Uh, there was a whole group of people and, and to their credit, Ben Dominich and Sean Davis, our mm-hmm. founders of the Federalist, really saw right through that and said that that's, that's a garbage uh, lesson to, to take from the 2012 yep. election. It, it's just the opposite. And, and there was no publication that was sort of articulating that view of conservatism sort of for the, the 21st century and, and for uh, what conservatism needed to be in the face of an ascendant 
left-wing uh, dominant culture mm. uh, and, and institutions that had, I don't think we used the term woke back then, but uh, you know, what we would call woke now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- it was really the failure of the conservative media establishment that gave rise to the Federalists. And uh, it's been surprising uh, and, and really um, amazing to watch it over the years uh, because, you know, there's other outlets out there that sort of, you know, speak, speak to this, but, uh, but the Federalist was one of the first and, and remains one of the strongest that sort of can articulate um, the problems with not just obviously the dominant left-wing culture, but the problems with the establishment right uh, as well. And the establishment Mm -hmm. in the the Republican establishment in Washington and take uh, that sort of calcified establishment to task for its failures. And, Mm. and and, uh, part of that includes being, you know, part of the elite establishment, Mm -hmm. the failures of our institutions and the elites who run them. And that's been, the unique kind of perspective, I think, of uh, of the Federalists is being willing to call those things out, being willing to articulate them, uh, and, and and not to care if that you know puts you um, you know gets you disinvited from cocktail parties in Georgetown. I mean, I I've never been to yeah. a cocktail party in Georgetown, and I probably never <laughs> will. Be, we don't care uh, yeah. about that, uh, and 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 uh, and, and that's uh, that has served us very well over the years. That's awesome. So we're going to get to the border. I think that you're somebody who you're, you are somebody who didn't start thinking about the border this week. Okay. You didn't start thinking about it even this year. Can you kind of tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about your experience at the border before the current crisis that we're facing occurred? Sure. I, I was, um, so as I mentioned, I, I'm here in Austin, Texas, and mm-hmm. I'm a, a senior editor at the Federalist. I'm also a senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where I used to work before I joined the Federalist. And back in 2014, uh, you'll remember, was the first um, unaccompanied minor crisis. Mm-hmm. And it was it was strange. Like, we hadn't really seen this before. All these all these kids and teenagers were showing up on the border in groups without any parents or legal guardians with them and just sort of turning themselves into whatever law enforcement official they could find. Uh, and the numbers were really shocking too. Like it was this huge surge and, you know, it didn't, it didn't get the same kind of media coverage at the time, but, you know, border patrol facilities were overwhelmed CBP. They didn't have anywhere to put these kids. They were not equipped at all because the whole border infrastructure down there is designed to house single adults, mostly Mm -hmm. Mexican nationals that are apprehended after trying to evade law enforcement. So the whole posture of the border patrol is sort of like this law enforcement kind of stance and view of how they do their jobs and they arrest these guys they take them in you know the border patrol holding stations are like jails concrete and and so putting kids in these places was like this big scandal and then families started showing up as well family units and turning themselves in and claiming asylum the obama administration didn't know what to do um you know and initially responded the way the trump administration did which was by which by detaining families until a federal judge said you can't do that uh so that's when i got interested in the border was in 2014 i started writing about and it was just curiosity really it was just like what's going on down there this is this is a a strange uh development and you know once you start pulling the thread and and get interested in it uh it it just kind of captured my imagination because it's so much more complicated and and there's so much going on there uh i just started going down to the border uh and and you know 
getting familiar with how the border works, what, you know, going to the shelters, riding along with border patrol, going into Mexico and talking to people over there. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing has led to the, to, to the next. And so I, I ended up um, doing a bunch of uh, in-depth reporting about the border crises um, through 2016, 2019 during the Trump administration mm -hmm. all this year as well. Um, it's taken me to Mexico City several times. I was just in Mexico in December meeting with uh, government officials, Mexican government mm -hmm. officials uh, and uh, immigration lawyers and political scientists and security consultants. Um, that was my second official like, like reporting trip to Mexico City. I also went in, in 2019, right before the yep. end. And so um, I, I've, I've, got, I've gotten a chance to, to dig in deep on what's going on the border. And I can tell you that, that we are, for as much as everybody talked let, this past year about a crisis, we, we're facing something um, worse this year. Mm -hmm. Now, the truth is, it, I think that's kind of a good segue into the, a reminder to everyone that we have not had a secure border for a very long time. Okay, just as defined by a border that we have operational control of. I mean, the United States, the, the southern border with Mexico, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with the statement, but the, the southern border with Mexico has been a largely open border, meaning anybody who should not be able to legally should illegally enter can enter. And for the most part, those people find their way into the rest of America. Right. And so. Yeah. In that way, the border is not secure. It doesn't prevent people from being able to illegally enter the country. Um, so that that's not new, correct? What we're currently dealing with is just a massive increase in the amount of people. Is there, other than the massive increase in the amount of people, is there something else that's changed at the border that you see in just some of your recent time down there? Absolutely. The, the big change is what I call the, the industrialization of illegal immigration. So illegal immigration has all, sort of always been you know, with us um, yep. and it always will be. What's, what's changed, though, is that the uh, cartels and the criminal organizations that effectively control northern Mexico, mm -hmm. together with smuggling organizations that profit off of, of you know, getting migrants through Mexico and into the United States, have figured out a way to monetize the illegal immigration. Yeah. And uh, so this has created a massive black market in migration that didn't exist hmm. uh, before even a few years ago. And, and there's all kinds of, of fascinating evidence of how it works. Um, but it, it's become a, a you know, multi-billion dollar mm -hmm. uh, black market industry just in the past few years. And, and, that, and that is a problem. So you have criminal organizations and smuggling networks that are sort of preying off of families uh, and, and children, both in the U.S. and in the sending countries and making an incredible amount of money, uh, you know, so that nobody crosses the border uh, anymore, like getting over the Rio Grande, like you don't cross the Rio Grande unless you pay now. Mm -hmm. Years, decades and decades ago, you know, the, the border was open, but it was sort of like uh, porous, you know, in the sense that like, you would have people cross the Rio Grande and, and work for the day illegally and then cross back over and, and go home. And, hmm. or seasonally, you know, you would have uh, ranch hands would cross, you know, and there, there was a kind of like organic uh, because it is a, a, a 2000 mile border, I think 1200 miles in Texas, 
it yep. is you know, re- remote and in, in some ways it's not like a, a border that could be closed. Like there's mm-hmm. borders like this in the world. Uh, and so there was a kind of organic ebb and flow of labor and commerce and, and intercourse between the two countries over, over that border. That's hardened now. And it's hardened kind of because the cartels and criminal organizations in Mexico are the ones who control the border. They mm. have operational control of the border. They have monetized the illegal flow of, of migration over the border. Mm. And, and everything that's happening on the border is sort of happening on their terms now. And that's new. And the levels of organization of that is something I think uh, that most Americans have no clue of, but would, would shock and scandalize them if they did. So you have now seen with the current crisis we have, I mean, the Biden administration is inviting the crisis. There's not really a debate on whether that is or is not happening. I mean, you have a federal government who has not only left the border open, um, but has also at the same time seemingly invited these people to continue to come in. I think you and I started talking after your Fox News appearance, and that clip from you speaking on Fox News went kind of everywhere because the Repu- several Republican governors all flew in to have a photo op and a press conference. And then they announced that they were asking Biden's administration to do all these things that they were failing to do. And they talked about how Biden was a horrible. point plan. Yeah, they had a yes. point plan. And all 10 points was just asking the federal government to do stuff. To do something. And so uh, you commented on that and just really observed like, uh, well, their plan is that Biden's going to do something like they're going to ask him to yeah. do these things. And so you were somewhat critical of that and, and really just commented on what it was. It wasn't, you weren't breaking any news. It was like, this is what they've done. You've spent time at the border. Um, Tell us how has that posture affected the border? Because I think my show has talked about this a lot, but we've talked about the fact that largely Republicans have not been willing to do what is always necessary. And this gets into the transgender issue. This gets into universities. This gets, we can talk about all this stuff, but specifically on the border, you've spent a lot of time down there. So talk to us about some of your observations on what the states are doing. um, And then maybe even some, some insights into what you think they could or should consider doing that they're not doing. The border is one of these issues where, you know, it's nice for Republican politicians to talk about it because they can really like inveigh against, you know, any Democratic administration and they can decry what's going on at the border. Uh, and then they can kind of throw up their hands and be like, oh, it's a federal, you know, it's a federal issue. You know, if only we could do more at the state level, we, mm-hmm. we certainly would. But, you know, we really have to run those Democrats out of Washington in order to get the border under control. This has been going on for years and years. All the negotiations for, you know, the comprehensive immigration reform that we all hear about that, that never seems to happen is always some kind of amnesty traded for border security. But the amnesty always seems to come first and the border security never really happens. Uh, and so it's just as you say, it's one of these issues that is is fine to grandstand on, but uh, nobody really wants to talk about what's happening why mm-hmm. it's happening and what what needs to be done about it. Um, one of the problems um, with the this pattern that we see from Republican leaders is they always ask, you know, for the same thing uh, in sound bites, border security. They never explain kind of what that means or what that might look like. Uh, does it look like you know, a, a closed border, like, like Trump's pandemic era order to actually just like expel, you know, do away with mm-hmm. this whole asylum kind of charade and just expel people who are caught crossing mm-hmm. illegally. Um, 
Does it mean comprehensive immigration reform? We haven't had major immigration reform since 1965. The, the basic immigration system we have has been, has been largely unchanged since then. Does it mean uh, new and different kinds of visas to sort of regularize some of the economic migration? Does it include asylum reform so that we don't have the, the sort of fraudulent mass of fraudulent asylum claims? If you, if you manage to start an asylum case, you get legal authorization to be in the United States and work until that case concludes, which mm -hmm. now takes an average of like three or four years. So if you can yeah. just get across the Rio Grande and initiate an asylum claim. You have three or four years where you can legally work in the United States. A lot of these people, that's all they're looking for. Yep. You just want three or four years to work and send money home. They're not, they don't want to move here permanently. They will, yep. if, you know, if, if things work out well for them. Yep. Uh, or if they can, or if they find out they can bring their family with them, a lot of these unaccompanied minors. This is the other thing people don't realize. People say, "Oh, you know, these parents, how could they send their kids on this perilous journey with these coyotes and smugglers?" The parents often are not sending the kids; they're sending for the kids. Parents are already here; they've already they're already established in the United States. Mm -hmm. and they, they are hiring people to bring their children from their home countries into the United States. And this happens more often than people think, uh, you know, there was this video, uh, I, I believe it was last year of smugglers dropping like a three-year-old and a five-year-old over the mm -hmm. wall and then like leaving them in a remote area of desert and just like running back, you know, across to Mexico and people are like, oh, this is horrible. What parent, you know, like, how are these smugglers like dropping a three-year-old and a five-year-old? And luckily the border patrol caught it on camera and they were able to get out mm -hmm. and the kids and they're okay. A couple of weeks later, which nobody noticed, um, New York Post reported on the fact on, on the those parents had been reunited with their children in like New Jersey. Well, the parents mm. had been in the United States the whole time mm. and had paid smugglers to bring their kids into the United States. So mm. um, there's a whole host of things that Republicans have been unwilling and unable to do over the years. And and the big one, of course, uh, that's that should be no surprise maybe to your listeners is the sort of collusion between the establishment Republican Party and the Chamber of Commerce big business that likes the cheap labor from illegal immigration. Hmm. Something that we don't talk about enough, but like there's a constituency mm -hmm. in the business community for high levels of illegal immigration. And and any immigration reform, any true conservative approach to the border has to directly call that out and say, no more cheap labor from illegal immigration. Immigrate, you know, if we're going to secure the borders, that means cutting off the supply of cheap illegal immigrant labor. When it comes to states specifically and kind of, and we're here in Texas, right? You said we share a majority of that Southern border is in our state, right? So you brought up the fact that a lot of these people coming in, if they get asylum, they can work for three or four years and send all that money back to Mexico. The state of Texas currently doesn't tax those remittances, right? So if you are a, a citizen of Mexico or a citizen of some South American country or one of the other countries that you come over, you come over here, you start an asylum case, you come, you take a Texas job, you work in a Texas job, legally work in a Texas job because you got three or four years to legally work here. You send all that money back to the country you came from. We don't even take a percentage of that. I know people have talked about taxing those remittances. There's been conversations about the fact that not only those people who can legally work, but even people who illegally cross and are still illegally in the country, 
If they graduate a high school, they can get discounted college tuition. That's fully state run. That is a state program. That is a state funded entity. You have all of these different taxpayer benefits that every illegal immigrant has access to, whether it's food stamps, if they need it, they can go to any hospital. So if you are somebody who's looking at coming across, and then when it comes to the actual operational control, so those are all to me like on more the magnet side, the incentive side, why wouldn't you tell somebody, hey, we're going to take 25% of your income and you can still send it back to whatever country you're at, but we're going to get a portion because that's that's not even going to cover the amount of healthcare and education and everything else that all these illegal immigrants are taking. So there's that side of the equation. And the other side is at the actual border. You've been down to the actual border, the National Guard, DPS. So can you talk to us about kind of both of those portions of the immigration conversation from a state perspective? Sure. So um Greg Abbott authorized through executive an executive order this Operation Lone Star, which is yep. the you know his the the operation to try to kind of get you know illegal immigration under under control in Texas in the face of inaction from the Biden administration and in the face of record you know record numbers mm-hmm. of arrests at the border. We had uh, 1.7 million last year. We're on track this year to exceed two million, which would mm-hmm. which would blow all previous records out of the water. Yep. Like going back since forever, since they started keeping track of how many people they arrested. Yep. Um, and, and I've been down to uh, areas where Operation Lone Star is in effect, not just at the border, but north of the border as well. Mm-hmm. Brooks County, you know, they, mm-hmm. um, uh, because of course the border goes, goes yes. inland to these border patrol checkpoints. Um, and, and what I have seen from uh, from being there and from talking to people and from asking questions uh, is that a lot of what the state is doing and a lot of what uh, Governor Abbott has has sort of authorized is political theater uh, so that he can say that he's doing something about the border in the face of federal inaction. Now, I don't mean by that that what they're doing does not take a lot of people working very hard to coordinate across agencies. Yeah. And, and it's really like complex too, administrative. <laughs> had to yeah. convert these state pr- prisons into jails and retrain, you know, uh, corrections officers as jailers. They have, you know, they, they're, they're the prosecutors are having to, you know, these really small counties like Kinney County, Texas, where there's like one prosecutor and his assistant, mm-hmm. suddenly they have thousands of, of like felony trespassing cases. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and uh, so it's very a very complex operation, and and I, you know I'm sure most of your listeners know, but I just uh, on background, part of Operation Lone Star is is the idea that you you will have Texas law enforcement arresting, including National Guard and, yep. and DPS uh, and state troopers arresting people for trespassing onto private land. Mm-hmm. Uh, who cross cross illegally, trespass on the private land, get arrested, and then get charged mm-hmm. on a, you know, a heightened charge that that uh, that the governor was able to do through an emergency order, uh, and they have to have agreements with the landowners, you know, in place. Yep. It's very kind. Of, so I'm not saying that they're not doing work, but I'm saying it's the idea is to serve as a deterrent. Yes, uh, I, I don't think it's working as a deterrent. Uh, mm-hmm. In part because it's not big enough, uh, and in part because uh, with Title Forty Two, which is the pandemic era order that Trump issued that Biden continued, yep. which which sort of you know just means you know if you, adult male is uh, apprehended crossing illegally, they're immediately expelled. No, they don't get processed. They don't get to file an asylum claim. They just get literally like 
sent back over the border. Yes. With that still in place, arguably the, the, the migrant who gets picked up by the feds and gets expelled under Title 42 and then not processed, and he can just keep trying again until they get through and yes. get caught, um, you know, is, is going to be in maybe a worse position than the migrant who gets arrested by state law enforcement, charged with felony trespass, gets bonded out, or the judge throws the charge out or just mm-hmm. discharges them on their own recognizance. Um, and then they're, they're either free to go or they get taken into custody by Border Patrol and file an asylum claim where they wouldn't have been able to do that before, before they yep. would have been expelled. So they file an asylum claim and they get into the asylum sort of racket and they get processed and released with a work authorization three to four years for their case to run its course. And that's what they had wanted. Hmm. So we're just, John, we're, I, we're not throwing up the kind of obstacles that would serve as a real deterrent. So John, I think what you bring up and, and you articulate these things uh, in a much more detailed way than I often cover them on the show. And that's why I had you on. I really appreciate you kind of walking us through that process. Cause I want to simplify this down and then tell me what I'm, what I'm getting wrong. So um, I think it's really important to point out to give a little bit more backstory. We've talked about this on the show, but I mean, Greg Abbott went on Sean Hannity and he said, Sean, we've got a new plan in Texas. We're going to start arresting everyone who crosses the Texas-Mexico border illegally. That's what he said. And I did find it. I mean, at the time when he said it, I was like, wow, that is bold, right? And Sean was like, thank you, governor. That's awesome. But it was two weeks later, three weeks later, they found the email where they specifically said, only arrest unaccompanied males, adult males, right? So they, I don't know if that was an optics thing. They didn't want to be seen arresting the kids or the women or whatever, but Texas, now I don't know if that's still the order in place, but but Texas is largely going after arresting these unaccompanied adult men for trespassing and then sticking them in this state system under the idea that the federal government's not doing it, so we're going to step in. But one of the points that I think is really important to make that you've made I think Beto O'Rourke even complained about this, that he was so frustrated that Joe Biden was deporting some of these people that were coming across the border this year. Because if you are an unaccompanied adult male and you come across the border and the feds pick you up, you're going to get shipped back before you even have time to try to get a foothold in our system. Where if you get picked up by DPS, you're actually more likely to get stuck in the system long enough to get a foothold and find a way to stay here for three or four or five years And so in that ways, it's not, that's to your point. Wait, I thought the point of this was to deter, right? Um, So yeah. It's going to take for smugglers to figure that out and start selling that to people and like intentionally steering them towards private land where they know Texas law enforcement is and border patrol is not. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's like, that will become part of the like package deal that people pay for. The thing that we must under that we we don't uh, fully appreciate is what I said earlier: the extent to which this is an industry, the, the extent to mm. which this is a money-making operation. Mm. The smugglers, the smuggling organizations, the cartels that they work with are very sophisticated. They have figured out how to do this. I'll give you an example of how sophisticated they are. Last year, one of uh, uh, the guys who does really great reporting on the border here in Texas, Todd Benzman. He's also based in the Austin area, mm-hmm. he works for the Center for Immigration Studies. He mm-hmm. went down and chronicled these, these wristbands, the wristband system that the, the cartels in northern Mexico were using 
All these migrants were discarding these wristbands when they got to the north bank of the Rio Grande. Well, the wristbands corresponded to databases that the cartels and the smuggling organizations had set up where they have the cell phone number of the migrant, the cell phone and home address and location of their families back in the sending country. They know the location where they're headed in the United States. They confirm all the numbers, make sure that they have mm -hmm. the right information uh, and that uh, the point is these these migrants are not like paying full freight up front. They're not paying six or seven or eight or ten thousand uh, dollars. They don't have that kind of money. They're going into hmm. debt bondage to cartels and criminal organizations so that after they get, get into the United States, after they get processed by Border Patrol and released by CBP, after they've gotten to the, the location where they're going to the United States, wherever that might be, they still owe these criminal groups hmm. and thousands of dollars. It's a system, it's a highly organized system of debt bondage that's controlled in Mexico, that, that is, they have data on these people. They're, they're not done with them after they get released yep. by border. That, that, you know, so this is a money-making operation. And so any incentives that we, that, that we stumble upon here uh, to allow people to get into the country, the, the smugglers and the cartels want these migrants to get into the United States and start making money because they're getting yep. a cut of it. Yeah, so I, that's, that's huge. To understand. No, I think that's really good and really good to uh, remind ourselves on because I honestly have not talked about that even particular portion on the show. I think a lot of people assume that these people are just saving, saving, saving back in their country, paying the cartel and then getting here. And I think you make a really good point. The reason, heck, for all we know, the cartels could be saying, hey, go pick, get picked up by the state people because you're more likely to get a foothold because we need you to start making money because you still have to pay us all this money. If you get deported right. and flown back there, our exactly. likelihood of getting all our money. Not true. That's exactly. Um, what we're talking about billions and billions of dollars a year. So that's it, 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 exactly what they're thinking. Okay, so let's talk about because we can literally sit here and talk about the border all day. Yeah. It's eleven forty-five, so I'm gonna. I don't want to keep you too long. I do appreciate your time. Uh, let's talk about journalism because I think that again, you talk about. We, that's why I started us off with the Federalists and and where y'all came from, where y'all are at. I think it's really good to point out the National Review portion, kind of the cultural um, aspects of the things y'all are willing to talk about because so many on the national level don't talk about these cultural issues. Immigration is a cultural issue. Transgenderism is a cultural issue issue. CRT has kind of become, in my opinion, the mainstream cultural thing that you can talk about. I mean, anybody can talk about critical race theory being bad. And even going back to some of these donors that we talk about, some of the big donors that want cheap labor and open borders, from my conversations with them and a lot of people, I mean, most of those people don't like critical race theory. So that kind of gets me off on a, on a tangent. But I think CRT is kind of seen as the culturally acceptable thing that everyone can say is bad. But um, I think the Federalist has always kind of engaged in that culture conversation at the same time. So here's my question. One, with what you write at the Federalist, and this is journalism as a whole, when y'all are putting stuff together, when you're putting stuff together, when you're writing things, when you're editing things, are you thinking, do you think we're kind of becoming balkanized within our spheres, uh, within our audiences and the idea that like I'm writing or speaking for this audience of this worldview that sees the world this way. And then there's this whole other group of journalists that are writing and speaking and producing and editing for the other half of the country that thinks very differently. How do we, or is there a place for right of center, left of center and middle of the road? Are we just going to become more divided? I was kind of interested in what you thought overall, because I know there are people that are left of center that read The Federalist, right? But also yeah. for the most part, these people just see the world very differently. So just comment on that or just some of your insights would be appreciated. 
Yeah, I think that that's that's uh, partly right and and partly maybe not right. Um, we're definitely balkanized, and we've we've been being balkanized. So that's a feature of like digital uh, the digital age, you know, and and the fragmentation of audiences. And I, I I'm old enough to remember uh, when I got you know National Review, Weekly Standard, and the New Republic, you know, d- delivered to my house in the mail mm. every week. Yeah, and read print editions, you know. Yeah, uh, and and really, you know, back in the '90s and early 2000s, there was just there was a, a lot fewer publications, and uh, they were all kind of centered in in DC and New York, uh, and and they they talked to one another. They they sort of cl- they they closely argued with these writers, closely argued with one another, uh, and and that and that was good in a way, uh, but in another way, it was. Um, it reflected the concerns of, um, you know, a rather small slice of America, American life. Uh, you know, these uh, people who certainly considered themselves to be elites or to be, you know, geniuses. <laughs> uh, but I think what we have now, there's balkanization that's going on. That's a feature of digital life. But I will say at the Federalist, one of the things I've been uh, that continually surprises me is the extent to which the way so much uh, of, of this is playing out with, with the pandemic, with the politicization of the pandemic, uh, with these cultural issues that are really just political. They've become like the culture war and the political war, kind of the same war now to a, to a large extent, that there, there is a large body of readers out there that don't necessarily like identify as conservative or Republican or align themselves with maybe, um, a lot of the things that 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 Federalist staff members would align themselves mm-hmm. with. That's said, we're we're a pretty diverse group, uh, yep. uh, even in that. But but they're they are people whose voices and perspectives are not reflected at all in corporate media. I don't even, and that's why we don't even use the term mainstream media anymore mm-hmm. because because the 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 mainstream media is not mainstream. The, yep. They reflect a very narrow elite view. Uh, yep. And and that's true of CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times and the Atlantic, but it, it's increasingly also you know true on on a lot of important issues of of National Review. It was true of the Weekly Standard, mm-hmm. um, and so corporate media uh, does not reflect and is not interested in in what a lot of just normal people think. Not conservative people. Like we have a lot of readers at the Federalists that are not like culture warriors or mm-hmm. on the political right or are like, you know, uh, su- super, you know, died in the wool Republican active. Yep. They're just normal people who, who actually maybe aren't even that political. Uh, but one of the things that we do and that I constantly think about at the Federalist is how do we write about the, the issues of the day in a way that gives voice to people who have no voice at all and who have no power? Um, and that guides a lot of what I write and, and a lot of, of our editorial direction that we uh, want to, we want to advance the conversation, uh, especially on culture war issues on, on, on our, that front. But we also want to reflect kind of a, a, this massive underserved body of readers in America that have uh, no voice in the corporate mm. media. 
So as those people continue to get, I, I agree with the idea of mainstream. I've always thought that um, if you look at what some of these people believe about some of these issues, it's like, by the way, y'all are actually countercultural, just to let you know. Most media are countercultural on whether a man can be a, ma- a woman, a woman can be a man. It's like, no, y- y'all are the actual. Y'all are the extreme counterculture of what this is. Right. Legacy media is often used to describe corporate media, legacy media. So, no, I appreciate the, the clarification. Uh, do you think that over time, more and more of that middle of America will just continue to get more of their information from, let's say, uh, publications that are willing to have a right of center perspective? Do you think there's going to be a rise of different forms of media? Where do you see this going over the next five to 10 years? You know, I, I don't know, but I do think one of the shifts that we've seen at the Federalist uh, after uh, 2016, uh, I would say just over the, over the past five or six years, mm-hmm. is that more and more people come to us as a news source. And so we've had to make some adjustments, uh, you know, to accommodate our readers. Uh, and the reason that they're coming to the Federalist for news, not just commentary, but, but news, yes. Yes. is they don't trust the traditional news sources that they mm. used to go to yep. uh, and, and they, and they've disavowed them uh, in, in a way, you know, that they, 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 even if they do read them, they don't trust them. And so they are looking for, they're looking for news stories that are maybe uh, the same, the, the stories about some of the same events, but, but are not framed in, in a misleading or biased way uh, or, they're at least, uh, you know, when we frame them and we present them, uh, you know, you know which perspective we're coming from and we're honest mm-hmm. about that, uh, rather than this sort of New York Times, Washington Post, like floating above it all, like we are objective truth, sort of like yeah. the Fauci's of journalism, you know, um, yeah. and, and, and like like they're an oracle pronouncing on, on what's real. Uh, I think a lot of people are just really turned off by that, especially with COVID, that's that's drawn attention to a lot of issues that people maybe ignored before. And I think, you know, you saw that in the Virginia gubernatorial election with critical race theory, you're seeing it, you know, people are just more involved in like what their kids are learning uh, because, because of the pandemic. And that has caused a lot of, you know, those normal people are not super political people to sort of start paying yep. attention to some of these things and, and not trusting what the me- I mean, the media has burned its trust to the ground too, with, with their, the way they've handled COVID. So um I think you're going to see a lot more people turning to non-traditional or non-corporate uh, outlets just for their, like, just to get news and information. Yeah. yeah. John, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you being willing. I know you had some issues. We could have done this in person, but uh, I hope all of uh, your car troubles get fixed up. But I really do appreciate uh, you coming on because, again, I think this border issue, I was actually talking to somebody at my church recently, and they said, hey, um, I feel like the border's not getting talked about as much anymore. You know, two, three months ago, it was not everything in the headlines. And I told him, I said, you know, it hasn't gotten any better, just to let you know. I mean, the, the situation hasn't changed. It's just the fact that our media runs, we run in such a 24-hour news cycle that uh, most of your larger media sources just can't talk about something for more than, you know, a month or two max. And even that is probably stretching it. So thank you for staying on this. Thank you for talking about it a lot. I appreciate your perspective. And honestly, the border crisis isn't going away. So we'll probably have a couple more conversations with you this year. Okay. I look forward to it, Luke. Thanks for having me. God bless you, John.